Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Arborview Capital prides itself on investing in boring but rapidly growing businesses at the lower end of the middle market that can drive environmental and social impact. Carl Corey started Arborview after having children and seeing just how wasteful consumer packaged goods companies were. There had to be a better way. Inspired by their experience as young parents, Carl and his co-founder, Joe Lipscomb, left jobs at established investment firms, Columbia Capital and Carlisle Group to create Arborview. Carl's first deal at Arborview was a management buyout of Drexel Metals, a standing seam metal roofing solutions business. Americans spend $17 billion annually in roofing materials and Drexel's recycled metal roofing replaced tar-based shingle roofing. Drexel's first gears rating was an abysmal 19. At exit, Drexel's gear score was over 90. At the same time, the business had grown from $18 million to $55 million in revenue and gross margins had almost tripled. The Drexel management team did not have a logical capital partner. Too small for buyout, not fast growing enough for venture. Lower middle market companies like Drexel or boring businesses like plumbing and HVAC services are often abandoned by capital markets, including impact investors, even though oftentimes such low-tech businesses can drive more resource efficiency than a cool new app. Arborview invests in traditional businesses like Vital Farms, Egg Farming, Temper Pack, Thermal Packaging, and Envocor, Large Building Efficiency, but also Supergirl, led by former stand-up comedian Sarah Pollan on a mission to make plant-based soup a common meal. Carl was present at the creation of Impact Capital Managers, He describes how impact-oriented GPs met on a terribly cold day at Harvard Business School over five years ago. Unlike an NVCA meeting focused on H-1B visas and avoiding changes to the carried interest rules, ICM became a group of like-minded money managers focused on high alpha and great impact. Listen as Carl describes the birth of Arborview, the birth of ICM, and how he helped make boring, low-tech, incremental change businesses attractive value drivers and impact makers. Carl, welcome to the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. 
As you know, we start every podcast asking about a deal that really defines your investment perspective. What deal do you want to talk about today? I mean, I can think of two or three different deals that would uh, would definitely define who we are as an institution. Um, I think the, the what I will do is I'll use one that kind of um, I think does define Arborview a little a little bit differently than some other institutions that do what we do. So it is a company called Drexel Metals. Um, it's a company we met and invested in in 2011, so a couple of years after we started the firm. And I was approached by uh, the nephew of the founder and his partner, who they were running a business which basically was providing standing seam metal roofing solutions in the roofing market to residential and commercial customers. Small company, uh, $15, 18000000 million of revenue, basically break even, uh, low gross margins. They were struggling a little bit with how to increase their gross margins. And uh, he wanted to buy out his 72-year-old uncle, who was the founder. And when they first approached us and said, you're an environmental investor, and we have a really interesting resource efficiency play, we thought, why in the world would we invest in metal roofing? It's steel. I mean, there's nothing There's nothing environmentally beneficial about that, is there? There's nothing resource efficient. And he kind of took us through the total addressable market for roofing, which is a huge market, $17 billion a year market, and metal. And then specifically the standing seam metal, which, as he liked to say, 85% of the roofing market was shingles, which are tar-based, they're petroleum-based, and they don't last long. And when you take them off, they throw them in a garbage dump and they off-gas CO2. And his comment was, we are using only domestic steel. It's recycled content. It lasts forever. And when we take it off, it gets recycled. So there's an, there's an environmental loop. Um, of efficiency, which is just not the case in the case of the dominant part of the market, which is these tar shingles. There's a higher cost up front, but as we learned, as we kind of got into it and started to address, you know, what are the things that are going to be sticking points for us? We started to realize that metal was growing along the coasts for climate change issues. It was growing in mountain regions for durability issues, um, and that it actually did fit with what we were trying to do as an institution, which is become more resource efficient and reduce things like petroleum-based shingles, off-gassing, and garbage dumps. So that that probably is one of the, the companies that actually fits our it's small, unseen company. No venture firm would really would want to invest in a roofing company. There was nothing really about that. But we saw the macro trend, which was that the industry and the company were was growing, or both were growing for reasons that had a lot to do with our fundamental thesis. Yeah, it's also the most boring, cool tech company I've ever heard of. It, it was boring, but it did grow from 18 million to 55 million over six years. And in the gross margins went from 12, 13% to over 30%. And I, I do think that even though it was boring, there were some really fascinating stories. I mean, we've got a couple of very funny ones. As we as we started to take and build a hub and spoke model instead of having offices all over and transportation and logistics routes, which were just an environmental disaster, we centralized and thought strategically about how we could make the business more efficient and it would also reduce uh, transportation miles. Those two things went hand in hand, where all of a sudden the, the core governance issue, which was trying to increase gross margins, also increased the environment, environmental impact and benefit such that when they first applied to a GEARS rating, we asked all of our companies to apply to, 
to, to some rating system. And at the time, we were just saying the only one we know is Gears and B-Lab. So when they first did the application, the initial score came back as a 19. And on, as you know, it's zero to 100. And you really can't publish a 19 if you have any aspirations to being an environmentally beneficial investment firm. But as they started to realize that they were doing things both in the employee base from a social perspective and supporting their all of their stakeholders, their employees, their vendors, their customers, as well as this transportation logistics strategy. By the time we exited three or four years later, their uh, uh, gear score was over 90 and they were eligible to be a B Corp. So it just took time and an understanding of all the things you were doing behind the scenes to actually not only make the company a better company and highly profitable, but a better impact story. I mean, who would traditionally buy this business and what did you do differently than any other, than a non-impact investor would have done? There is no doubt that the cover bid, if there was one and there wasn't, it wasn't a marketed deal. But if there ever was going to be a cover bid in this, it would be a pledge fund from a, what we would call a micro uh, buyout or small growth equity investor. Most of the time in some of those early deals we did. There was a, a pledge fund or an individual kind of uh, two operators that spun out of a middle market buyout fund that wanted to kind of get up and running and do deals on a deal by deal basis. Um, as time has gone on, I mean, mind you, we started in 2008, uh, you know, over the course of the last four or five years, as impact has gotten, you know, much more popular and people are starting to realize that there are various different ways you can start to invest in the impact space. Um, certain segments have taken off and now it's quite competitive. But back then, the deals were often pledge funds and, and people like us who were just trying to get up and off the ground. They, they didn't hit the radar screen of established firms, larger firms, tech-focused firms. Um, and so it, it, it was a relatively easy way to kind of get in and, and see businesses without a lot of competitive pressure. Now, the second question you asked, which is what do we do differently? I think that is just you have to have an intentional strategy of doing fewer investments and diving in and really getting involved and engaged and excited about the nuts and bolts of the business itself. I was the executive chairman of that company for the last two or three years. And I mean, it was one third of my day um, at the time. It was one third of my day, but it was also the period of time where Brian, Bill and the rest of the management team flipped it from EBITDA negative to EBITDA positive. And as gross margins exploded, we knew we were going to make really good money. You could just see that it had gone from an interesting story to a fundamentally sound, high growth, profitable business. And if you pay a fair price for that entity and there isn't a lot of competitive pressure, you're going to make money. It's just a matter of how much. Impact and alpha, but <clears throat> you, you had you left a very successful um, venture career to start Arborview. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, when I left Columbia Capital um, at the end of 06, my wife had had our twins, our, our twin daughters. We have three daughters, 15, 15, and 12. And Steph had had the girls. Uh, we were two working parents just trying to figure out how to make it all work time-wise from a time management perspective. But what we started to realize ourselves, and this is kind of the 05, 06 timeframe, as, as early parents, you start having to buy all of this gear. Right. And you're, 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 it's what you're feeding your children, all the stuff you have, whether it's the different toys, the different, you know, ways to carry your kids and transport your kids. And we started to realize this is an environmental disaster, right? The amount of plastic, um, the amount of resource that goes into having children 
And as we started to think about that as parents and, and, and environmental citizens, we just started to realize this is a mammoth, mammoth opportunity. I mean, I had been investing in telecom and technology and the, the advent of wireless from wireline systems, right? I mean, we didn't, you know, at that point in time, you didn't know you were going to do everything in your life on this small device when I joined Columbia Capital in 95. And by 07, we, that's all we were doing. And it just seemed that this was a huge opportunity, right? If everybody cared about the clothes they were wearing, the water they were using, the energy in your home, reducing your costs, but reducing your footprint, that seemed like a multi-generational transfer of wealth and transfer of, of, uh, of need that seemed like a good place to spend my time and my energy at 37, 38, 39 years old. So when my, my co-founder, Joe, was the, was the uh, chairman of the DC-based, Maryland DC chapter of the Nature Conservancy. His parents were philanthropists and, and, and into these types of issues. And so as we started to sit down and talk about where best to spend our time and invest to make money for our constituents, but also make a difference, resource efficiency and sustainability to us seemed like a logical place to go. And that that became Arborview Capital. Part of that story is that you bring patient capital and are willing to do deals that aren't necessarily um, like like roofing, metal roofing. Can you talk about how you think about patient capital in that context? Yeah, I think we, we this got to the second layer of the story, which was Joe had been in Carlisle at a buyout firm and I'd been in the venture industry. And I think f- from my perspective, I was getting a little concerned that we were capitalizing businesses with 50, 60, 70 million dollars in what we used to call alphabet city rounds of ABCDE all the way through. And if you, you look at the Cambridge data, it would say that the average exit, it doesn't mean we want to be average, but the average exit was 75 million dollars. So if companies are being capitalized with 40 or $50 million and the average exit is 75, you're basically doing a 1.3 to 1.5 fund. That's not a good return. I mean, it may have a decent IRR, especially if you're in a buyout fund with a dividend recap. But I didn't want to be in a business where I was putting my own money, my um, the capital that I was investing in Joe's capital and our investors' capital into a 1.5x strategy. I mean, our hope was to underwrite things where we could underwrite to a 3x and generate 2x net return funds for as long as we wanted to do the business. And so I think the strategy became, well, where can you do that? Where is the best risk-adjusted return profile? And then we thought small micro, small growth equity, where the company already had $5, $10 million of revenue, but low gross margins had yet to really capitalize on efficiency wasn't burning a ton of cash because we didn't want to raise a large fund and fly all around the world anymore and fundraise. We wanted to just sit in our homes or stay in one market and be able to do it on the 95 quarter. So from our perspective, if we could have an intentionally concentrated portfolio of what we would call overlooked but really interesting high growth businesses that were suboptimal in the way we all think about really well-run, highly efficient businesses, we could spend our time really working with these awesome founders who may not have the best IP, but have a really lovely idea and just need help in executing on that plan. And so that's where we we went from not just resource efficiency and sustainability and impact, but also what part of the market is a little bit overlooked, where valuations might be a little bit uh, a little bit easier to come by, where we can find a, a fair value for both sides, and just help them execute into that more efficient business model, which will accrue to both of our benefit to all of the benefit of all the stakeholders. 
And that's how it came about. Now, now you talked at a high level of the differences between sort of a Columbia Capital or a, a, a Carlisle relative to an Arbor View. But could you talk specifically about a deal or two that you would not have done at Carlisle that you were able to do at Arbor View? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there. I, I, I would, I could put, it, I could go both ways, right? I would say, but if there was one that I would not have been able to do at Columbia, I mean, look, Columbia Capital has been highly successful. They've got an incredible track record. I was fortunate to have been there. It was a great place to learn the business. Carlisle has been an incredible organization. So there's no way you can say that there's one model that's better. I think if you wanted to stay small and focused and and intentional. This is a little bit, this is probably a better platform to do it. And a good example of that, we invested in a company a year ago um, called Supergirl here locally in the Washington, D.C. area. Sarah Poland founded the company with her mother in their garage. It does plant-based soups, gazpacho, healthy meals, healthy uh, food company that has actually started very local and somewhat small. And, and I got to know Sarah a few years ago and I just found her compelling. She's actually a former stand-up comedian, so she's hysterical very intelligent, really intentional and passionate about the food supply and about food waste, about plant-based dieting and the health of the, of the, of the citizenship of the citizenry. And so she, this was a big deal to her. How do I build a business that I can be proud of with my mother? Um, it was small. You know, when we invested in Supergirl, it was a $2 million business and we were only investing $2 million. You could not do that at Columbia Capital. When you have a $400 million fund or a Carlisle, you can't do that. When you run a $50 million fund and you put two in and maybe you're going to reserve another two or three or four million, that becomes a 10% um, of, of the fund kind of deal. And you can make that investment in a smaller vehicle. Clearly, every uh, venture firm needs a stand-up comedian, a former stand-up comedian as a C- CEO. So thank you for bringing that to the table. It's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting that many of the products you're backing, whether it's Supergirl or Temper Pack, are, are really taking traditional products um, and like in the temper pack case, it's just packaging, right? And and doing it incrementally better. How do you think about from an impact perspective, uh, incremental change versus radical change? So as a consumer, I like radical change, right? You know, from an intellectual stimulation perspective, you'd love everything to be radical. I, but I did know that I'm not a scientist and that Joe's not a scientist and Carolyn Farley, our partner, um, is not a scientist and Emma Park, we're not scientists. So you either have to build that network in your advisory board to actually understand and truly dig into IP, or you should be avoiding things that are really revolutionary because that's not your skill set. You know, whether it's Elon Musk or, or the folks at Sequoia or Benchmark, people who actually spend their time really changing paradigms. Um, I think that's fascinating, but we knew that that wasn't the best risk adjusted return profile for us and for our LPs investing in us. Um, having said that, there's a lot of great impact that can be created in what we would call more incremental impact. And a lot of the business in the same way as most job growth in the United States is done in these smaller businesses, a lot of the incremental impact is going to have a mammoth influence on our country. I mean, plumbers can actually have as much sustainability impact in terms of reducing water as a great water tech company. And, and that's just because there's a tremendous amount of efficiency that occurs from existing systems that are not necessarily going to be changed from a revolutionary perspective. So I love both models. I just know that my skill set and my ability to make sure that my investors make really good returns as well as have impact um, is best suited to what we call a little bit more of an incremental strategy. 
And when you think about incremental strategies, that tends to mean sort of longer hold times uh, in your portfolio. So can you talk about how you think about the the risk reward or impact reward spectrum as as the time of your average deal extends to five, seven, nine years? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I think I could argue with you that the revolutionary sometimes can take 20 years, but then the company's worth $50 billion. So you didn't mind that, you know, it took 20 years. In our case, when we started out, uh, we had both invested a lot of our own capital um, and our time in the traditional 10-year fund with, you know, GP extensions of one to two years, but you really are still filing K-1s 15 years later. And we wanted to try to avoid that. So when we first did fund one, um, we went to our large family foundations. We have two or three that are have been our core families for the whole time and, and have since it's since grown from that. We went and said, why don't we do an eight-year fund instead of a 10-year fund? Let's see if this growth equity strategy will play out in a tighter time frame. And if we love the companies at the end of the uh, at the end of year eight, we hope that we don't have to do more than one or two more year extensions. Let's make sure this is a 10 year fund max and not a 15 to 20 year, because at the end of the day, you're investing in multiple uninvested capital and we want you to own the asset and not have to sell it in the secondary market. Right. So what we said to people was, if there are three companies left at the end of the fund, let's spin it into an SPV, shut the fund down. And you can own that asset in your foundation or your trust, like maybe if you had uh, invested in Ben and Jerry's you know, 30 years ago, and now you just own Unilever shares. So that was the thesis at the time. Even now that we've raised multiple funds, we still think to ourselves, we don't necessarily want any decision on a deal to be driven by the length of the fund. We want our investors to have the ability to continue owning that asset because great businesses take time to own and, and build. We have seen in our in our investor deck, we have seen that most of the value created in our portfolio has been between years five and seven. Because if you're coming into a, into a, a partnership with someone and you want to take some time to get to know one another and build trust, then you're building infrastructure, human capital, you know, capex, you know, uh, working on your balance sheet and strengthening your balance sheet. It's in years three, four, and five where you start to accelerate either the revenue growth or the gross margin performance of the business, and so therefore. What we have found is that being patient and saying, we don't have a time frame. If the fund is no longer going to be in existence, we'll spin it into an SPV and keep building that business if the return on equity is strong for our founder and partner uh, and our partners on the, on, the, on the investment, but also for our LPs. So I think it's, it's a slightly different strategy that's not confined to the fund time length. And so, therefore, we can be really patient and allow the company to, to grow and build. I mean, if you look at some of our best wins, whether it was Drexel or Vital Farms or LRI, which is now Envocore, a lot of that value was in year six and seven. Um, and a lot of your deals are actually like physical products. They are windows and, and roofs and coffee machines. Um, how does product design fit into your uh, impact thesis? Um, I I think it does. And you do try when you're when you're on the way in as an impact firm, when you're coming into an investment, you're trying to think about not just how the business is going to be more successful as it becomes more efficient and as it starts to realize critical mass and other benefits of scale, but also how can you make changes to your sourcing and to your employment practices and to your vendor practices and your trade and logistics. It just so happens that we, you know, our first and third investments were wildly successful and they were based on some of these core tenets. And so you have a tendency to find yourself going back and realizing that that's a skill set and that's a type of a, of a trajectory that we can 
we can uh, you know emulate and continue repeating. So whether it's Ratio, which even though it's a software-enabled tech product, it has elements of what was what made Drexel Metal successful, what made Envocore successful, what is making Temper Pack successful. You know, you're starting to see those patterns in our business. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 25 years now or more. It's all pattern recognition. So whether it's a software company, a software tech company, a food company, if the elements are the same in the business model and if you can start to see how pushing and nudging some impact kind of discussions at the board table made a difference, I think you can you can you can repeat that process over and over and over. And I think we've been able to do that. Does this strategy change at all as large fund families like General Atlantic, BlackRock, and others raise environmentally focused funds? And 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 how does Arborview kind of keep its niche? It's a good question. I, I, I think when, when we think, when you and I think as fund managers, how do larger forces impact us? I think they do, right? So, you know, if the public markets are really, really high, then M&A valuations are high. And then all of a sudden it trickles all the way down to the venture space or to the small, in our case, small growth equity space. You see it in the case of valuations, right? People who have five million of revenue think they should be valued the same way as someone who has a billion dollars in a high growth public company. So, if, it's, if General Atlantic or BlackRock and large players start coming into the market, it does a couple of things. It does change how the entrepreneur and how we all think about down the road um, alternatives for liquidity or you know what may come down the path when you're talking about consolidation. And that does have a tendency to come all the way down to the Series A, Series B level and, and seed capital. Having said that, it also raises awareness. And awareness is probably one of the most important things when you're talking about trying to create a positive impact. I, as a citizen, want that to be the case. I, as a citizen, don't want there to be an impact space 50 years from now or, or 20 years from now. I want my children to automatically assume and demand that there is positive impact in everything that they do. I think that the younger generation does. And, and once we now can prove over and over, which we believe we have, that you're not going to sacrifice returns. And in some cases, you can enhance returns by doing the right thing and by trying to, 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 to have the discussion about impact across all elements of E and S and G. I think that it, it just makes everything better. Now, from my perspective, the more larger firms like that are coming in, the better for our existing portfolio, because we're investing at a space and we're investing at a point in time in a company's life cycle where they're really not interested. It's too small. It's, it's either not core IP. It's too small. It doesn't scale. But seven years down the road, you know, whether it's Temper Pack, Vital, Shenandoah, when companies are over a hundred million dollars of revenue, suddenly some of those larger players become really interested in those types of strategies if they've been well-built businesses. And that's, that's what we should aspire to as, as investors. So then are, if, if those kind of large environmental funds aren't uh, the, the coming into your space so much or sort of truly additive, do you see kind of consumer goods, private equity firms uh, changing their ESG focus? And does that impact Arborview? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone should be uh, thinking about how they can best uh, build their firms for good returns and, and maximum impact. I look back to the Columbia Capital days. We were one of very few firms that were focused on wireless communications in 1995, right? You had MC Venture Partners. Madison Dearborn did a little bit. There were a few firms that were communications sector-focused firms. By 99, Every single firm in the Valley wanted to do a Metro Fiber Core router, you know, rip up the streets and put in. New I don't gear even know what a Metro Core Fiber router is, but it sounds important. 
But there was a point in time when every single firm in the United States wanted to invest in the core gear that went into the telecom network because people said, well, we did it in, in, the, in the computer network, so now we should do it in the communications network. And of course, it was a lot more complicated than that because the buying cycle at Bell South is very different than the buying cycle at Cisco Systems, right? I think we have that same issue here within this impact space. You are going to see consumer products company investors come in and become impact investors because the trend in CPG is toward cleaner, more sustainable alternatives. And so therefore, if you're a CPG expert, you will absolutely go and seek where the growth is. You're not going to invest in the next Kellogg's. You're going to invest in the next company that's actually growing because you, Daniel, and I, you know Carl Corey, we are all investing in this new model, which fits our needs as consumers. So I, I do think we'll see more competition across the board. I don't think that's a bad thing. As a small firm that has an intentionally concentrated portfolio where we may only have six to eight companies of fund, I don't feel the need to worry about building out 50 companies per fund. So I'm fine if there's more competition. We do things a little bit more slowly. We're a little bit more patient. As long as we can generate our kind of 3x average deal and 2x plus net fund to our investors, we're going to be in business for a long time. And that's the goal. One of the key learnings of sort of the type of investing you do is that the new product, the environmentally sensitive product, has to be superior to the legacy product. Um, that's from electric vehicles to windows. Can you talk about how that plays into your thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think I, the question of does it have to be superior is an interesting one. In the case of Drexel, that is a superior product. In Alpen Windows, where it's a you know a triple pane, highly efficient window, if we think about what makes it superior, it is environmentally or efficiency based superior. I don't know that someone would say the window. You wouldn't look at the window and say it's superior. You you, you may have better sound attenuation. You better you better have. Uh, um, better efficiency. But I don't think we necessarily look at it and say it has to perform and be superior, but it certainly has to perform or has to be as good as what is out there today. You're not, you don't want to sell something that is not as, uh, as good a product at the same price point or a premium. It has to be as good or better. Um, but I do think that in general, whether it's building materials, um, new technology, software-enabled uh, products that have come out and software-enabled services that have, that have evolved, you do see that productivity enhancements and things do get more and more efficient and better over time. So I just think it's a natural cycle. That's across the entire venture industry and not unique to us. And, and speaking of natural cycles of, of evolution, you were present at the creation of Impact Capital Managers. Uh, can you describe the first informal meeting we had and sort of why you wanted to help start and be a founding partner uh, at ICM? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you were there. So, I mean, I think we could speak to this together. I mean, first of all, it was very cold um, in Boston in that Febru February of what, five or six, seven years ago. I think we all sat down in a room and, um, you know, clearly there were a number of people who had kind of pulled us together and challenged us to come sit down and say, ask ourselves, are there things that are more, are we more mission aligned? And are there things that bring us together that, that drive our thought process where we have shared experiences that we'd like to go communicate and figure out how to leverage together that aren't necessarily represented at a traditional, you know, industry association. So when I would go to NBCA, um, you know, which is a great industry association for the venture world, you're talking about, you know, H, H1B visas, you're talking about carried interest taxation. And in that 
moment when we were all sitting around freezing our freezing our freezing walking between buildings at HBS years ago, I think what we started to talk about is what are the other things that matter to us, right? How do we attract capital to a mission aligned strategy where yes, we are trying to generate market leading returns, but we also want to make sure we have a positive impact, whether it's environmental, social, some of the firms had nothing to do with what we do on the environmental side or just good governance, right? And so I think we were aligned in what we sought, which was to use our shared experiences to communicate these incredible case stories and benefits of doing business the right way in a way that drove a more positive outcome, not just from an, from an impact perspective, but from a returns perspective. And we knew that that was not going to be very easy. So I think I found that to be a really cool challenge, right? How do you go out and live your life and run your business and invest your capital with your investors in a way that's going to make you proud, but that you've got to figure out how to convince every other, everyone else that you're not sacrificing returns. And ultimately, I think we've been able to do that. All of us as an, as an industry association, as a group or a network together have been able to, to show people, um, and the broader market that this is actually a really attractive space, which is why people are coming in, um, and being more intentional about how they communicate their impact. Hey, can you then talk about sort of this continuum? Uh, and, and it used to be that people thought about this, you know, you're either, you know, concessionary capital or your, or your fiduciary capital. Like, can you talk about that continuum and where our review sits on that? Yeah. I mean, we are 100, we were started by, you know, uh, two, inst- you know, two individuals. And now we have an investment team of four and a CFO and it's a couple of venture partners. And everybody knows that the goal is to actually generate really, really strong market-based returns, right? Top tier returns. The, the foundations that invested in us said, this is great that you believe in this and we believe in it as well. But if you don't make great returns for us, we're not going to be around. Um, so I think in my mind, the, the continuum, there are plenty of, of, uh, of, of reasons why you and I um, as capital providers may try to look at some concessionary return strategies with our own capital um, and and de- deploy those for reasons that are much, much more important on a global basis as citizens. My job is actually to generate market-based returns for my investors and aspire to do as much as I can to generate positive impact as well. And so I kind of look at my job as I want my daughters to be proud of the companies that I'm investing in. They wear all kinds of gear from all the companies that we invest in, right? And they and I want them to be proud of that. I want our investors, we tell our investors that we want them to be proud to talk about the fact that they have an investment in Vital Farms, an investment in Temper Pack or Drexel or LRI. We want them to to love what we're doing, but we absolutely have to make the money. So I think we are at one end, which is we have to generate those market-based returns and better than average. But yet we want to be impact investors. As a citizen, I would absolutely tell you that it's critical that we also have foundations and individuals that are investing in ways that don't necessarily always seek the top tier return because there are other ways that you can create positive impact. Yeah, it's interesting. I asked you a couple of questions about who you kind of comp to and sort of the the, the ESG focus of some of them. And uh, I'm just curious, do you see... ESG and sort of what we do influencing the ultra lower end of the middle market that you spend a lot of time in? Uh, it's It has changed in the last 13, 14 years, uh, just because more people will say that and I, um, say those words. It, it probably has to do with one, capital, right? You know, as you're seeing this transfer of wealth occur, 
from a patriarch matriarch down to the younger levels, you're seeing more people who care about that. They want mission aligned returns. So I think the capital markets are forcing some of that dynamic uh, and dialogue in both private and public uh, managers. I also think the entrepreneurs are. Um, if you had asked me 14 years ago whether there was a chance that we would be, quote unquote, selected by an entrepreneur to be a partner or invited into something where we weren't the only investor because of our strategy um, and, and the fact that it was impact based and aligned with the entrepreneur's thought process or passion, I would have said, wow, I think they're just going to take the highest price for the hottest firm or the best name or the best partner. It has changed. We have people who call and say, you know, I want to have mission aligned investors who are patient capital, who will work with me, didn't take their time. And, and I did not expect quite as much of that shift to occur as has occurred. And I'm sure you've seen that as well. I mean, there are times when someone will say, we are going to, we would like to invite you in. And here's the other firm we were talking to. And I thought, wow, I, I never thought I was going to see that. Yeah. It's, it's the mainstreaming of, of uh, mission aligned capital, which I think is one of the key drivers for for all of us, uh, which leads me to sort of one of my closing questions, which is today there are about seventy members of ICM managing about twelve billion dollars of capital. Uh, in in five years, how many firms will there be, and how much capital will we be managing? Well, as a fellow ICM board member, that's one of the questions that you and I both ask ourselves, right? I personally would like impact managers to be all managers someday, right? You know, I'm, you know, we all follow various people on social media. And when I look at what Chris Saka is doing now, I mean, I feel like I'm talking to a fellow ICM manager when I read his blogs, right? Or when I read his tweets, I, I think we are all heading in that direction. And I think we should, we should demand that we are actually going to make money and make things better for the people that come behind us. And so I think this is, it's not just mainstream, it, it's, it's public markets, it's private markets, whether we call it impact managers or whether it just becomes the G in ESG and good governance is to only, to be able to say you do, you're, you're, you know, driving good governance goes across all elements of a business's uh, evolution, whether it's treating their employees better, the vendors better, the customers better. And if you build that stakeholder model and, and that conscious capitalism framework, you will do, you know, we will all succeed. And so, uh, Pete, you, you, I've been asked this before. Will there be, will you call, will you be an impact manager? I don't, I hope we're not an impact manager. I hope it's just assumed that we are all doing the right things while making really good returns for our investors. Can't think of a, a better sentiment to to end on. Uh, that was a great perspective. You know, Carl Curry and our review, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. It's always great to see you and I look forward to seeing you again at the ICM meeting soon. In person, perhaps. Exactly, someday soon. Okay. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.